But we begin today with what has been the big story of this week. I, I understand that it's only Wednesday, but certainly it's been almost nonstop ICBC talk because of the announcement made Monday that the BC government, Premier David Eby, has applied to freeze the basic ICBC rate for a couple of years. And there were a lot of statements made about how this will make it among the most uh, uh, affordable uh, car insurance in the country, which is something that obviously British Columbia has not enjoyed. <laughs> not in my lifetime anyway, and I've, I'm five decades into this, um, not quite as a driver, but certainly, you know, I, I hearken back to the days when I, I, I was able to purchase my first car and just how expensive it seemed to insure that uh, $2,000 uh, old clunker of a Honda Accord hatchback that took me to 375,000 kilometers. Um, but I digress. Back then versus what young people are facing right now, it, it's it's a story that needs some attention. And, and the headline around what the government was laying down was built to read as great savings for all drivers, a rate freeze, some relief when it comes to that basic rate for ICBC. But unfortunately, as our next guest crunches the numbers here. It does not help all drivers, particularly young drivers are, are hit here. And we're welcoming our guest who was uh, quoted and, and gives great insight in the Derek Penner piece in today's Vancouver Sun. We welcome Richard McCandless, a retired BC government policy manager and an expert on ICBC finances. Thank you for being with us, Richard. Appreciate it. Yeah, good to be with you, Jody. I found your article to, it was almost a little bit triggering for me because I remember as a kid, my parents were, were those who said, you got to buy the car and you got to pay for your insurance and you got to buy your own gas. And when I look back at my days and what it, young people face today, I wouldn't be able to afford this. There's no way. Right. Yeah, it's um, it's been a problem that uh, has kind of been swept under the rug. Um, it the government uh, of BC, and it was the NDP, shortly after they took office, um, there was a lot of criticism about uh, ICBC rates at the time. And one of the first things they did was uh, uh, look at the, what they called the fairness of, uh, and, and put out a survey, a public survey, which was a kind of a biased survey. This is uh, in the spring of 2018. Uh, basically said, do you think bad drivers should pay more than good drivers. And they, everyone, of course, said yes. So yeah. based on that, they did a, uh, and I think I was at the instigation of the um, actuaries at ICBC. They've been trying to do this for quite some time. They did a major revamp of the rate design such that, um, and they'd like to say inexperienced, but in reality, it's younger drivers. Um, we're going to pay a lot more than... Um, mid-aged and older drivers who had a better driving record on average. And that's what they did. It was a very draconian change. And there was a lot of um, public concern at the time. This was in the fall of 2019. Um, but it's kind of dissipated over time. But it's still there. This, uh, young drivers in BC are still paying um, significantly more money than the same young drivers, same characteristics, in Manitoba or Saskatchewan are also on the no-fault model that we are now on. Right. And one of the things that you highlighted uh, in this in this column in today's Vancouver Sun, um, in that report that you're referencing there, an 18-year-old driver in Vancouver paid $3,044 for basic insurance from ICBC compared with $1,163 for a 50-year-old. Uh, just to correct you, that would be their total insurance, basic and optional, if they right, had optional. So, correct. Got you. Not their basic, but that would be full coverage, right? Yeah. So, but I mean, that difference, it, it does seem unfair when, when you break it down, like you said, dr draconian, it's sort of sweeping, isn't it? In that yes. it, it punishes somebody for having just simply not held a, a driver's license for longer. Yeah. And, and, you know, people who are at fault in accidents, they should pay more. But up until 2019, uh, BC was on the same model as Saskatchewan, when it's similar model to Saskatchewan and Manitoba, and I think actually Manitoba adopted theirs from BC, um, where it was based on your driving record. So if you had a clean record, um, you weren't hammered as much as if you had uh, one or more at-fault claims. But they switched in 2019 and went to the what I like to call the private sector model, where these people are put into uh, groups 
risk groups. So young drivers, as a, especially male young drivers, were put in a risk group, and it didn't matter what their driving record was. And, and that's how their um, premiums were determined. Um, so that, that was a problem right off the bat, but there was a lot of other things that were changes made in 2019 that affected younger drivers and, and those with uh, some at-fault claims. They were going to pay a lot more for a lot longer. We're with Richard McCandless, retired BC government policy manager and an expert on ICBC finances. If you were trying to put these pieces of a puzzle together in a, in a particularly more baseline, I, I'll use the word fair manner, how would you move those puzzle pieces? Yeah, fair is a key word. It's very subjective. Um, there's, they went to what I call pricing perfection. They tried to to make the rates uh, as accurate as possible based on their actuarial tables and statistics. And, and really what they were doing was shifting the cost from older drivers to younger drivers. Um, and, you know, they what they were trying to do is get a, like a 10% increase in the uh, quality of the, of the uh, rating system, but the cost was paid for by um, younger drivers in particular, inexperienced drivers, and and those with uh, with one or two accidents. Um, and I just think they went too far. I think they, yeah. they should come back a bit toward the model that was in place up to that time um, and make it less onerous on the younger drivers, particularly younger drivers who have a clean record. And, uh, and you know, it's it's currently I believe it's currently unfair because of the uh, the the uh, hammering of the younger drivers. Yeah, that you just fall into that bucket. Therefore, you're going to be punished as though you might make yep. the you, that you might be the worst of them. Because I know every year, Richard, every year I was like, I'm one step closer to my forty percent. I am a road star, and I would go out of my way to make sure that I would keep my road star status, earning that 10% reduction from 16 years of age because I literally showed up <laughs> to get yeah. my learner's license on the, the day after I turned 16, and I love to drive. It is, yeah, well, you know... You know, they, it used to be up until 2019 that the maximum discount you could get was 43%. Yeah. And, and the chair of ICBC at the time, who happens to be now chair of BC Ferries, uh, as part of the campaign said, well, it just doesn't make sense that 80% of the drivers are at the full discount. Well, it does make sense. Um, most drivers are good drivers, or yeah. at least good in that year. They didn't have an accident. Um, and and it's not necessarily just a core group of the same people each year causing accidents. Mm, um, yeah. it, it may be that there's 10 or 15% of the drivers have an accident at their fault, but it's a changing, changing uh, group of people. Yeah. Um, and that's why we buy insurance. I mean, that's the whole point and mm. um, to spread the risk. I think that's key. And that demographic piece is really important as well, because not everybody has the access to the transit to the, Hey, just ride your bike there. People need vehicles to get around and they need it to get to, to schooling oh. or what have you. Yeah. And, and or, to make it impressively young construction worker and yeah. got to move yeah. your tools and things. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a real problem, especially these days where it's so expensive to live in urban centers yeah. um, with the cost of living. That's incredibly expensive. Richard, thank you for giving us some of your insights. I, I hope that uh, those who are making the decision makers uh, hear you and read you in today's Vancouver Sun. As I said, the Derek Penner piece uh, is very enlightening. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. Cody Van sitting in for Jill Bennett. Always looking forward to a time to sit and chat with our good friend Claire Newell, the president and founder of Travel Best Bets. I'm so glad to be here on your weekly visit. You always give me such great ideas, obviously great travel uh, deals in, in the most literal sense, but also, Claire, you inform us on all things travel, and so many of us want to get away, as Madonna was just saying there. <laughs> 
on a holiday. That in my, and honestly, I was kind of humming along to it as I'm trying to flip my screen back to my, my, my screen that I'm looking at instead of trying to figure out what the score is for the France-Morocco game right now. <laughs> Are you going to give us an update? Should we say no spoilers, no spoilers? No, no, spoilers? no I will give you an update. I, I, I know that lots of people record it. I just okay. don't want to, but I was... I'm dying to know. I'm dying to know. Okay, I I will check in the next commercial break. Let's first, before we get to a lot of great meat on the bone that you have here as far as uh, travel intel, I wanted Mm -hmm. to ask you a little bit about the cell phones on planes in the EU that's expected in in 2023. I'm sure you've spoken about this numerous times, but I wanted to pick your brain. Like, When do you think that might be happening here in the 5G vibe? Oh, I don't know. For those who don't know, so the European Commission, uh, just a week, maybe two weeks ago, has decided to let airline passengers make phone calls in the sky and to use the internet. So it's also going to allow passengers to access their apps and stream video and music on planes that are equipped, as Jody already mentioned, with 5G service. And EU member states are going to have to make 5G technology available on airlines by June 30th of 2023. That means if you're planning to go to Europe, you might have someone sitting beside you talking on their phone, doing a business deal, or who knows, fighting with their spouse. Stuff you might not want to hear. So take earplugs or your own noise-canceling headphones and just be prepared for it. Do I think it's going to come here? It may. I always look to Europe to see what they do first there. Sometimes it takes um, years, but in many cases, it's actually much quicker than that. And there's been a lot of talk by different airlines here in North America that are starting to include Wi-Fi and getting technology Mm -hmm. um, that will allow streaming so that one day if they actually put this in place, they'll have the technology to allow for it. So do I think it's coming? Yes, I do. Eventually, do I? I like it. Well, part of me likes it for, you know, the possibility of doing work on board. I'm going to be mm-hmm. very aware uh, of myself if I do have to make a call. I would make it short and talk right into my my, my speaker. Um, yeah. But I please no speakerphone. Please no speakerphone. Honestly, the, the, people. Right? It's like it's no. like watching. I've I've seen people put on their Netflix show or whatever, and <sighs> just not use their headphones and just have it out. And so I, I just. It. You know, I don't get it either. And I do think of my, especially my long haul flights as a bit of a sit on the couch and kind of watch an entire series like I did when I I was flying back uh, from a quite a big trip and I watched the entire Crown series, the new one Whoa. <laughs> so, on one trip. So that's a yeah. long movie. <laughs> that's it, a, yeah, long it's a long movie. It was movie. good, though. But um, yeah, yeah. so do I like it? I'm 50 50. Yeah, I'm with you on that. You know, it's like sitting in a restaurant and the people at the next table are watching their TV show. It's like, no, guys, guys, we can hear you. Yeah. Okay, let's get into some travel. Let's uh, let's reduce our, our, our uh, blood pressure and our anxiety levels of all things and, and dream a little bit. We all, I think we all really want a little something, don't we? Where, where do we want to go, Claire? Well... Well, there was a new survey done by Sunwing, and I, I'm not sure you had a chance to take a look at it, but Sunwing's survey basically showed the travel intent. And it mm-hmm. looked, it, what it showed was that 53% of Canadians who intend to travel internationally in the next year, 51% say that they want to book an all-inclusive vacation. Like, I yes. get that. There's something about going, especially as a mom, um, yeah. Or, you know, a parent and just going away and not having to make beds, cook the meals, um, you know, shell out 10 bucks every time your kid wants a soda or a ice cream or a smoothie. It's just, it's an, so I I get why people want to do that. And um, the places, first of all, what they really like are um, all inclusives that have resort, great resort amenities. So they want those restaurants and pools and gyms, but they also, they want a really nice beach. And I get mm-hmm. that too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, majority of them are the places that are serviced by the big charter companies like Sunwing, but also Air Canada Vacations, Transat, uh, WestJet Vacations. And, you know, they're Dominican Republic, Mexico, um, Veradero as well. Yes. I know that lots of people Thank love Hawaii, you. but there are no all-inclusives there. No, no. <laughs> there's there's much more to be done for mom in Hawaii than there is in one of those other destinations. You and and also there's the kids club element and the you know when the family's going, everybody can kind of go their separate ways at an all-inclusive and still know that everybody's cool and together and it's it's all good. But also that. 
that big destination travel, like maybe going to um, somewhere that doesn't have all those pieces pulled together is, is part like more of an adventure as well. Yeah, a lot of people do want to go somewhere where there is an adventure kind of element to it. I like that personally. Um, Costa Rica and Panama were two of the the big players for those types of destinations. So when you're going to somewhere like Costa Rica, you get to see Arenal Volcano. You get to see both the Pacific and the Atlantic. You get to see the jungle aspect. So there is, and, and still have a nice beach. So you can kind of do it all in that type of a destination. Same goes for Panama. The uh, infrastructure as far as tours and the adventure element is is not quite as good as it is in Costa Rica, but it's certainly there and you can do that that type of thing. They're, they're come, they've come a long way since I was there, um, mm. but it is a, a really cool destination. For most of those, you're having to go over somewhere like Toronto to get to those destinations. So I know from Vancouver, a lot of people love those non-stops, which unfortunately they, they don't have at this stage of the game. Right. Costa Rica is so on my bucket list. I hear you talk about it all the time. I'm like, I got to get there. Everybody who's been is like, it's just the most, it's everything you hope and more. Let's talk a little bit about the airlines as well. Cause you've got some, you've got some Intel from swoop and Sunwing and air India. You got a bunch to touch on. Yeah. There's, there's a lot going on. Um, uh, let's quickly touch on Swoop because they're adding flights to Mexico and the Caribbean. And they're doing yes. it from Hamilton, Toronto, Winnipeg, Edmonton. But for here in BC, it's Abbotsford that they're adding more frequency for the leisure travel market. And that's going to begin in January. So here in BC, Swoop's going to be adding more flights from Abbotsford to both Los Cabos, Mexico, one of my faves, mm-hmm. and Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, which is also one of my faves. Um, WestJet, they are also, so Swoop and WestJet, kind of sister companies, but um WestJet is increasing some really interesting destinations coming up, Asia and some European destinations from Calgary. And those are going to be on their 787 Dreamliners. What's really nice about this is that for those who want to go out to Europe this summer, often you kind of break up the journey. If there isn't a nonstop flight, you have to you know, stop in, say, Toronto or Montreal and continue on to the destination. And it kind of is halfway. So other than, you know, if you're going through Calgary, you can get that quick connection done and then go to sleep and wake up in in one of these destinations. So they're adding service to Edinburgh and Barcelona. Mm -hmm. Neither of those have nonstop flights from Vancouver anyway. So it's going to be great to have that as an option. That will be seasonal from May to October. And then the other one they're doing, um, it will be the first flight to Asia. Calgary to Tokyo will begin at the end of April this coming year. So that's going to... That's exciting. Uh, yeah, it'll be really, really exciting. And WestJet, they're also going to increase their frequency on routes from Calgary to London, both airports there, Gatwick and Heathrow, as well as Paris, Rome, Dublin. So lots of choice. And I think that's going to really help lower some fares with the frequency. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward yeah, to too. that. I want, <laughs> let's, let's go. I want to get to your deals for the day, but first okay. we have to touch on the reclining seat fine. Oh my gosh, I couldn't believe this. So this was, first of all, let's just talk about nobody likes the recliner. In fact, a survey was done by the Vacationer, which is a publication. 77% of U.S. travelers find that reclining seat neighbor is the most irritating person on the plane. (laughs) I am a fan of reclining. Okay, I do want to recline, but I think you kind of should make the gesture and look behind you and let let them know you're going to be going back and just do it slowly. But there, in October... Um, there was uh, someone in China. It went through the court. It was a court case, and it resulted in a rail passenger. So it would be the same if it was a, uh, a airplane. If you're flying there, yeah. find the equivalent of four hundred and sixty-five dollars for ignoring wow. signs about seat etiquette and damaging the laptop of a passenger behind them. So I had a, a diet coke that I was drinking, you know, fall all over a laptop that was went kaputs mm. when I was on a flight because someone. Reclined, reclined back and ruined it so i get this um but just you know if you're flying in china you're gonna have to be aware of this <laughs> yeah let's look out for one another though i always look and make sure that i don't have premier david eby sitting behind me you know what i'm saying like the tall yeah. people that have the seat i'm not gonna re- i don't need to recline three inches that badly no but I, my I husband's am like six you. four right and we get so it you know you know yeah you, know. you just don't want that and it's it is uncomfortable but i still i'm paying for it i do want me to too. recline and get a little I'm comfy Linda Steele and I disagree on this all the time when we have this debate on our show. It's very funny. Oh, <laughs> it's very funny. Okay, let's get to your deals real quick. Um, short on time, but we got to get these out here. Okay, Vegas, January 8th through until the end of February. There's only, you know, select dates, but air and three nights staying at Caesars Palace, which is nice. Four and a half star, 249, tax Come of on. 203. That It's a real deal for that. That's a deal. Uh, Mazatlan, a five star 
a beachfront all-inclusive, only three dates, January 6th, 13th, or 20th. I do know the 13th is getting pretty limited, but Aaron Seven Nights, five-star beachfront all-inclusive resort, for those who know it, Rio Emerald Bay, Ooh. 1085, taxes of 490. I know it sounds like a lot, but it's really good. Um, it's all-inclusive, uh, guys. Yeah, yeah. It's all and five-star. Five <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, the Greek Isles. So Greek Island mm -hmm. Cruise, keeping in mind, this is between June the 16th and September 1st. At that time, it's really hard to find a hotel for like less than $300 Canadian a night in these, yeah. these places. So this is a seven-night cruise with a $50 onboard credit. You will visit some great Greek islands, Rhodes, Santorini, Athens, Mykonos, but also Haifa in Israel and mm -hmm. Limassol in Cyprus. Inside cabin, $699, tax of $187. Ocean view cabin, only $100 more, $799. Oh, come on now. Come on. Plus, yeah, 187 Who's not tax. That? Yeah. Now, the cheapest one is September 1st, though, Jody. I'm going to qualify this. The others are like $7.99, maybe like $100 more. The, the peak, peak date would maybe be $8.99. So they're all really well priced. Okay. You got to squeeze in Bali. Come on. I do. Okay. Squeeze so it January, in. It the, in, girl. select dates January 20th through until March the 8th. There's, I think, five, six dates total. Airfare. 12 nights hotel, your breakfast every day, a dinner is included, five optional sightseeing tours. But if, I'm telling you, if you go all that way, you have yeah. to take advantage of these optional tours. Um, transfers are also included, $2,078, taxes of 420 Come on. That's like... That's pretty good, right? That's Bali. So oh pre-pandemic, so though, good. I must yeah. say it was eighteen ninety nine plus right. the similar tax. It is a couple of hundred dollars more, but everything is really, really expensive right now. And if you're yeah. looking at the variables, you're talking about you know inflation and gas and um, capacity issues. I thought this was a really good deal. I agree with you. That's why you are travel best bets. Well, <laughs> thank you very much for giving Thanks, us a little Jody. extra of your time, as always. Let's get to our next subject matter. This is one that I really need explained to me. Are you familiar with OpenAI Chat GPT? Yeah, me neither. Or you're like, yes, I am. I've tried it. It's very cool. I do believe that Ben Dooley, and I, I can't quite remember. It was something, Ben Dooley got this AI, this artificial intelligence to put together a song about something sung by Sarah McLaughlin or something. Some, like you can literally put anything into this and it will spit out what you ask it for. It's become so smart. It's become so intelligent. Now, at the at the root of this, when when the technology was was blooming, Elon Musk had a hand in it. He had to step away from it because there was some crossover, I think, with AI with his his Tesla artificial intelligence. There, there's a bigger story here, and in order to do this properly, we need an expert. So let's get the contributing host of Get Connected on CKNW. Mike Agarbo is with us. Mike, hello. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm so curious about this. I'm a Luddite when it comes to it. I have no real idea of how it works or what it will be used for. And I think that maybe some of our listeners might be on the same page as I am. So please set the table for us, will you? Uh, it is, uh, it's a huge story, Jody. I would say this is the biggest uh, tech story in years. It's almost like the start of the internet as, uh, as we know it. AI technology has really kind of popped up on the radar in the past year. We've seen a lot of these text-to-image engines that have just improved exponentially on a weekly basis. Now, uh, this uh, chat GPT, it is blowing me away. It's basically a conversational AI um, tool that can do all kinds of things, everything from writing uh, essays, blogs, uh, if you want a tagline for your product, you need a social media plan for your business, you need to actually uh, put something in a programming language and, and uh, pop out 3D model. It can do so many things and the quality is amazing for what it is today. Wow, it's smarter than us. That Elon Musk was saying <laughs> that he thinks this is actually dangerous. I'm I'm uh, I'm excited and concerned at the same time. Like the quality of stuff that I have uh, got outputted from the things I've put in, it's just amazing for uh, a tool uh, like this. You know, I, I had it uh, come up with a, a blog on Denmark in the 60s, and it was amazingly detailed. And I can just only imagine in the next year, like the quality of the results coming out of this will just be fantastic. I'm, you know, I'm concerned about educational institutions and students, yeah. you know, if you can get this thing to write you a, a 10 page report on nuclear fusion, honestly, in seconds, 
like how how are teachers in these institutions going to be even to you know be able to figure out that the student didn't actually uh, write this or coders right. as well their jobs like being able to get uh, you know this engine to to code a website or a program or you know create these Excel macros it's just amazing what it can do right now. It's interesting. I was mentioning Ben Dooley, our producer for this show, uh, and he said, I got this AI thing to write a song about Vancouver Connects Forward Brock Besser as sung by Sarah McLaughlin. And it actually wasn't bad. <laughs> that- I know. I, I, saw, I saw this one video. This guy online uh, wanted to uh, write a song in the voice of Drake uh, about uh, him not liking beans. And it spat this out in seconds, a whole song. He then took it into another AI engine that could actually sing in the voice of Drake. He put a few beats behind it, and it was pretty damn good. That's just wild. So, Mike, is this, is this the AI that, that futurists were speaking about that might replace, literally replace lawyers? Because they can take, this is the evidence, this is the law, and mash it together in seconds. I believe so. I mean, this this is I, I feel kind of the genesis, the the birth of uh, the AI that we're you know reading about in, in you know sci-fi novels or seeing in in movies. The fact that it's so good right now, and uh, this one we're talking about, uh, ChatGPT, is basically using data sets from 2021. It hasn't even really been kind of connected to the internet and all the wealth of information uh, out there. So I can only imagine when when that happens. But, you know, you've got to take some of the results with a grain of salt. I had it uh, write up a blog about me. And, uh, you know, it was well written and it made me sound really good. You know, I had to do it a few times. In one, I was an accomplished film and TV actor with, uh, you know, some, um, you know, Oscar wins under my belt. Another one, you know, I was a a very popular singer songwriter out of Toronto that collaborated with Taylor Swift and Lady Gaga. So uh, although, you know, I sounded great, not entirely correct. Not accurate. Hmm. No, interesting. But you know, for some of the other things that I, I did have it do, it was amazing. I had it do some poems, you know, about horses, and then I thought, could it do one on air fryers? It was pretty, it pretty good. It was, it was really good. You can have it right in the voice of Shakespeare. Um, one of our guys that I work with, John Beeler, who's my co-host on Get Connected, he's yeah. an avid 3D printer, and he had it write out a script to create a 3D model of a snowflake. And what would have taken him an hour to program, this thing did in seconds. Whoa. Okay, that's an application that we could all wrap our heads around in terms of how that might legitimately and significantly in the short term impact what what can be done with regard to how humans input it. It's just when the AI gets smarter than us that we have to really worry. You know, robots taking over is a bit of a concern. Yeah, I I don't know when that day will come, but probably sooner than, than we, than we all, all want. Right now, yeah. yeah, these these AI engines are, are basically operating on data sets, you know, whether it's an image engine or this this text language engine. It's, you know, how much stuff that we're feeding it so it can draw reference upon that to, you know, spit out the results uh, that uh, that we want. So, uh, again, with the image ones, like how far they've come in the past three months you, Jody, you would be blown away. And so I'm just looking at these things and like, how is that going to change uh, jobs? You know, graphics artists or, or, yeah. or writers, you know, it's a tool. Uh, you know, it's going to change a lot of these professions. You know, I, I don't know how yet, uh, but I know for 100% it, it completely will. Right. It's, it's kind of like, as you were saying, the, the birth of, of the web or, you know, the first time somebody said, well, how about an electric vehicle or how about a, how about a steam vehicle? How about, how about flying? You know, the, the, we, we're in that changing of or turning of a page on a chapter in history that, that we will always look back and say, remember before that? Remember before, even when we watch old movies and we're like, look at those people just walking down the street, talking to one another, looking each other in the eye. Because now we're looking down at our phones the whole time we're walking down the street, right? There's the the way it's changed culturally. What's interesting about this tech, and I've been in this business for years, you know, uh, just looking at technology. Uh, You know, we looked at the, you know, we've looked at the internet. You talked about electric cars. This AI technology is advancing, I would say like a hundred times faster than that. Right. Like every week there's a new update and it's, yeah. it's just blowing my mind. Back in the days of DTV, could you have imagined this Mike Agarbo? That's the thing, right? <laughs> Back in the day when the computer took up the entire room, 
Yeah. I, I knew that, you know, we'd advance to certain things. You know, I'd hope that flying cars would be here sooner. Uh, yeah, right. But I think we're still a few <laughs> years away from that. Uh, yeah, but the AI is advancing faster now than I had imagined. I, I thought we're still a few decades away from, like, some uh, real practical applications of it, but it's happening now. And the listeners need to to know about this. They need to try these tools as well. And, you know, again, Google Chat uh uh, GP and and find that you can sign up for a free account and just start trying it out. It's free right now. Of course, I'm sure they'll find a way to monetize it as soon as they can. But right. it's just amazing uh, what it can do. Who's the they? In uh, that? Open AI, open, open AI. AI. So, so there, it, it had Elon Musk as a part of it. Is there? Who are we looking at? You know, as Amazon, as Bezos, as as uh, Zuckerberg, as Meta, as Elon, as Tesla. Who's who's Chat? GP? Uh, I don't know all the players uh, behind it, uh, but it's uh, obviously a group of uh, scientists and programmers uh, and AI experts that are, are putting this all together right now. Uh, you know, Elon Musk was involved uh, in the past on this, but he's not involved on a, on a day-to-day uh, aspect as far as operations or, or decision-making uh, right, right now. So funny. People are sending me the uh, AI chat GP uh, results that they're getting. Tim French just sent me Marge Simpson playing hockey. I've, I've now seen everything. If <laughs> you just literally ask, we're talking tech, we're talking the advancements in technology. This open AI chat GPT uh, discussion that we've had, Mike Agrabo, uh, contributing host of Get Connected on CKW, is with us. Um, it, it's really quite engaging. I got completely and utterly distracted in that last commercial break. But I'm, I'm back focused here because I'm very interested to learn in how the Apple landscape in the App Store might evolve with new laws coming into play in the EU. EU is actually Apple's second biggest market. Uh, the Americas account for like $170 billion in uh, sales a year. Uh, the uh, European region is about $95 billion, so they can't ignore it, obviously. Uh, the EU is going to bring in something called the Digital Market uh, Act uh, that has to be enforced by 2024. Basically making uh, some of these tech companies, I think, a little more competitive with their, uh, their ecosystem or uh, their operating system. So currently, when we look at the mobile space, it's Apple and it's Google Android. All the other smartphones and tablets out there uh, are running Android, maybe Windows, but they're not as a big player in the mobile space. So the, this new law will basically force Apple to open up uh, their app store in the sense that they're forcing them to allow other app stores to exist on the Apple platform, which will change a lot of things. So right now, if you want to have your app on the Apple app store, you have to pay to do that, right? Or you have to be approved to do that and pay to do that. So that's kind of one of the nice things about Apple is that, you know, it is a walled garden. And because of that, uh, it filters out a lot of the junk and the crap that's that's out there. It's much more secure than the Android side, and they're better at looking after privacy uh, as well. A lot of the developers, though, um, and, and content providers aren't exactly happy, though, with Apple because Apple takes anywhere from a 15 to a 30% cut of any apps that are sold through the app store. And this uh, comes down to content and subscriptions uh, as well. So if you're like a Netflix, uh, you would basically have to pay Apple uh, a percentage of any of the monthly uh, subscription fees, uh, you know, if they did purchase that app through the uh, Apple app store. So uh, what a lot of these developers hoping now that, you know, if there are alternative app stores, uh, they will be able to basically, you know, have these uh, subscriptions and not have to give Apple a cut, which as you can imagine, I'm sure Apple is not happy about. I was just going to say that. So what does Apple say about this? Any comment there? Yeah, they're concerned about the overall security. And, you know, they're right in many ways. If you look on the Android side, it, uh, you know, for many years has been very fragmented and kind of a cesspool for a lot of these fake apps that are basically stealing private and personal information and are uh, a lot of uh, security risks as well. Uh, You know, hackers are able to get into people's phones because these apps haven't been properly vetted because there are so many different uh, app stores on the Google uh, Android platform and, you know, easier ways to what's called sideload these apps in without having having to go through uh, the, the app store. So, uh, you know, this, I, I feel, um, will kind of open up more security risks on the Apple platform. Uh, you know, 
you know, the competitive side, that's great. You know, having more app stores, that's, I think, might be a good thing. But again, you know, how much control can Apple have to make sure that it still remains a secure and easy place for uh, people to use the phone? And that was the differentiating factor in the early days of what separated the two, right? It, it really is. And uh, it looks like the EU is trying to open it up even more. Uh, they, they want, uh, you know, the uh, hardware features to be more open and available, like the camera and things like the NFC chip that are built into the, uh, the iPhone as well. Currently, from a payment standpoint, you have to use Apple Pay, but they want that opened up to other financial apps as well to be able to, to use that, kind of like the tap and pay uh, thing. Also, the Find Me network that works, uh, you know, so well with the AirTags, uh, you know, yeah. they want that opened up so other competitors like Tile can get in on the action as well. Interesting. I just purchased the AirTags for my for my dogs. That was it's yeah, like, they're great. If, yeah, it finally <laughs> hit me. It was because I was listening to Get Connected, frankly, in in talking about how simple the technology is because I. I can find things a little bit complex. One of the other reasons why I enjoy Apple, it really does talk to one another in a way that that feels like if it's hard, you're probably doing it wrong has always been sort yeah. of the, the Apple way. Even when people are like, well, if you're an artist or a graphic designer, you need to use an Apple product over uh, a, an Android product. And then I'll, I'll sit with my good friend Drex, who will go, we'll go back and forth over it because he is Android um, on his phone and then Mac on his computer. I'm like, how do you even do that? How do you, how do the things talk to one another? But I guess that's where the EU is going is creating an environment and creating an ecosystem. As you said, I think that's the, the perfect way to sort of frame it is an ecosystem where everything can grow and thrive as opposed to going tighter and tighter and more protective in nature. And, and, you know, every time I do an iOS update, I'm asking myself, is this the one that plunks this, you know, iPhone 12 pro mini, whatever, you know, cause <laughs> We've gotten into that process as well. So we'll always need you is what I'm saying, Mike Agarbo. We'll always need you. Thank God. Yeah, but it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, already the EU is forcing Apple to uh, adopt the USB-C plug standard. So you'll be seeing the the lightning connector go away. I kind of like that because everything else I own from electronics is the USB-C connector. So uh, the EU, I think, in some ways is, uh, you know, doing some good things from a a tech uh, standpoint. It'll be interesting to see how this all rolls out by 2024 for Apple. And hopefully Apple can find ways to still keep the phone secure and just easy and and fun to use. I'm so glad you brought that bit up about the cable because that has been one real issue in terms of really new, new, new device. Who dis? Where am I plugging that in? How do I, how do I plug that in? It's really, mm, it's one of those things. So I'm glad the EU is leading the way. Thank you, Mike Agarbo. As always, my pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Jody. Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett. Time to talk about what's been going on in Iran. I mean, we're all following along. Huge Iranian community uh, here in BC. You've seen the uh, the regular news stories of people standing in solidarity with the women of Iran uh, after the the murder, really, of Masa Amini, uh, the the woman who was wearing her hijab too loosely, um, who was taken in uh, by those who would restrict. The, the rights of women, those who would would put restrictions uh, unreasonable, certainly most would agree, Canadians would agree unreasonable restrictions on women and 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 really the the tragic story of of Masa Amini and and how women have stood in solidarity in Iran, putting themselves in peril. There's so much to this story. there's it is a human rights rights crisis coming to a head. There uh, is certainly not unique to Iran. Being in Canada, we where we do hear people, some people screaming, you know, freedom and saying we have no freedom here in Canada. And then you see what's happening abroad. And it just it puts into perspective just how lucky we are to be here in Canada, particularly as women. Um, but but all walks. Um, the story today that that I hope to dig into a little bit, because it is such a complex huge human rights story is that of a former Iranian professional soccer player who was just yesterday sentenced to death for being involved in a protest. He's in fact been 
charged with being part of a and and it's actually in the story at, at the BBC is it, and and si.com for that matter the uh, the the words an armed group is in is in quotations because that's the that's the charge that is what is being said is that he was he was armed in his protesting on behalf of supporting women's rights in Iran and I want to get deeper into what is happening here and and how this 26 year old faces execution now for standing up for women's rights in Iran. Kaveh Shirouz is a lawyer and human rights activist, a senior fellow with McDonald laurier Institute's Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad. Good to speak with you, Kaveh. Thank you for doing this. My pleasure, Jody. Good to be with you. This story just really is, is one that, along with those who have already been executed there, because I understand there have been a number of of rather public executions of protesters in in an effort to to halt these protests to show that the 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 hammer will come down swiftly and and in a rather evil fashion for those who stand up to this this government yes you're absolutely right i mean this is a regime that um never really had many ideas to begin with but it whatever little ideas it has had it has run out of um now all it does is uh, carry out brutality. And as you point out in the last week, it has carried out two public executions of very young men, 23-year-olds, um, accusing them of this unbelievably medieval charge of waging war against God. That, that's literally the charge. Um, that, that, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something really out of the dark ages. Um, and it's, it was really, you know, that, you know, these people were arrested just a few weeks ago. Um, a lot of government officials in Iran kept talking about, um, you know, we should hurry up and, and punish these people. So really it was just rushed through. There was no due process, no access to counsel. It was really just an execution intended to send a message to protesters that if you keep coming out in the streets, we will grab you basically at random and we will hang you. Um, and frankly, I think the regime has miscalculated. I don't think it's working. I think all it has done is it has infuriated people um, and uh, motivated them to continue to push for the downfall of this regime. So, Kevin, just speak to how incredibly um, powerful and empowering it was to just simply see young women and really women of all ages pull off their required head coverings and, and cut their hair. Incredibly empowering, incredibly inspiring. Um, you know, it, it, this is something I've been saying for years, and I'm glad that people are finally waking up to it. Um, Iran, under this Islamic Republic, is an apartheid state. It is a gender apartheid state. It's also a religious apartheid state, and we can talk about that separately. But from a gender perspective, it's an apartheid state. Um, women are, uh, by, by law, in many ways considered half of men. Um, and for them to take this symbol of their oppression and, you know, in the West, we often hear of the hijab as being a symbol of empowerment and this and that. And, you know, for some women that choose to wear it by choice, you know, fine. But in Iran, it is nothing but a symbol of oppression. It is nothing but a symbol of apartheid. And for them to actually take it off, in many cases, burn it um, and stand up and just begin to live a free life is unbelievably moving. And it's a sign of, you know, women demanding emancipation. In trying to educate myself about um, how things have shifted and flowed in Iran, it wasn't always this way, was it? Uh, in, in terms of women's rights, you mean? Yeah. Uh, no, it, it was not this way. I mean, 40 yeah. years ago, before, before the revolution uh, that brought the Islamists to power, um, Iran, you know, it was not a free state. I don't want to sort of overly no. romanticize it. But, but women were empowered. Um, a lot of women um, were well-educated. They were equal to men. You know, you saw tremendous growth in uh, women's economic power and their um, ability to kind of get high-ranking positions. Um, and Iran was sort of keeping pace and, and moving very close to kind of Western standards of, of women's rights. Um, this regime that came to power four decades ago tried to beat Iran back into the 7th century, um, and the fact that Iranian women continue to go to school, continue to you know do a lot of things, um, isn't because of this regime. It's despite this regime. If the regime had its way, 
it would be treating women the way that the Taliban treat women. It's only because Iranian women back in 1979 and 1980 stood up, protested. Um, you know, their protest was ultimately defeated, but it was really a sign of strength of, of Iranian women. Um, it's only because of that that women have still, despite this apartheid, been able to occupy a little bit of space in the, in the public sphere. It really is something to watch and yet so incredibly important that we have these conversations around the globe because the solidarity does bring power to the people who are putting themselves in harm's way. And that's why we hope to have this conversation and form those who maybe aren't, aren't as uh, well-versed as you are. Uh, Keve Sharuz is a, a lawyer and human rights activist, senior fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute Center for Advanced Advancing, excuse me, Canada's interests abroad. So let's go back to um, the September 16th and the death of Masa Amini, the 22-year-old who had been arrested by Iran's morality police for allegedly not wearing her headscarf properly. And and how many people, what is it, 450 people have been killed, 18,000 people arrested in conjunction with protests since then? Uh, yeah, I mean, this, this regime, as I mentioned, knows very little except brutality. Um, you know, the, the protests that began as a result of the killing of Masa Amini, um, I think were, were long, uh, they were, they were, they were going to come eventually. Um, yeah. and this was really the spark. Um, you know, this was a reminder of the daily indignity and, and humiliation that Iranian women have to deal with. And for men, it's the humiliation that their, you know, moms and sisters and wives have to deal with. Um, and so they came out in, in, in record numbers and, uh, you know, initially for the first few days, this was about the hijab and this and that. But really, very quickly, it became, uh, you know, the, the slogan became, you know, death to the dictator, death to the Islamic Republic. They want this regime gone because they recognize that this regime, it, it can't be fixed. Um, it is something out of the dark ages and it needs to be replaced. And uh, I mean, the regime has dealt with it um, through brutality, as you mentioned, you know, h- hundreds killed. Um, and many of them are children. I mean, literally nine-year-olds, ten-year-olds are being killed by the by the regime in the streets. Um, and and they've... seeing the stories of how police come at the protesters, they they intentionally try and and fire into their faces. A- absolutely, yeah. There, I mean, I I speak regularly to to doctors, and there are doctors groups that are actually officially saying this now. They're saying we're seeing record numbers of people coming in with shots, you know, fired at their eyes. Like the the, the security forces are deliberately trying to blind people. Um, this is the level of brutality that, that the Iranian people are rising up against. This is what they've had to deal with for four decades. Finally, I think the world is, is beginning to take notice. Well, definitely taking notice and certainly need to be loud about it and, and standing with those who would be brave enough to to speak and put themselves in harm's way. In speaking about those doctors, you know, seeing stories out of Iran now, that those physicians, if they are caught treating protesters they might also be jailed. Absolutely. I mean, this is a regime that has, that has done this regularly. You know, now it, it jails physicians for treating protesters that have been shot. For years, it would imprison lawyers that defended, um, you know, dissidents that had been imprisoned. So if you were a lawyer, like if you were a dissident and you wanted a lawyer, your lawyer would risk going to prison simply for defending you. Um, wow. <laughs> I mean, this is, it's it's an unbelievable level of cruelty uh, that this regime unleashes. So I, I, you know, I, this regime can't fall fast enough as far as I'm concerned. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. We are talking about what has been happening in Iran since the September 16th death of a 22 year old young woman, Masa Amini, who had been arrested by Iran's mortality police for allegedly not wearing her headscarf properly. Closer to today, in fact, yesterday, a young man named Amir Nazar Azadani, uh, a former professional soccer player has been sentenced to death for being a part of a protest in support of women's rights in Iran. We wanted to talk about human rights. So we've connected with Kave Sharuz, a lawyer and human rights activist and senior fellow with McDonald Laurier's Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. And and Kave, can you speak to what this young man is facing right now. Is there anything that the international community might do to intervene here? Is his fate uh, solely in the hands of the radical, um, uh, intolerant government in Iran? So in terms of what he's facing, um, before the break, we were talking about this unbelievably medieval charge of waging war against God. That is what um, Nasr Azadani has also been accused of. 
Um, so he's facing capital punishment. Um, he may be hanged at any moment, really. Um, in terms of whether his fate is sealed, I, I think um, there there is hope um, if the international community collectively and forcefully speaks out. There have been instances where the regime has tried to carry out executions, but um, you know, high-level officials in democratic countries have spoken up and they've put Iran's regime on notice that you know we expect you to um, you know not carry out this execution. And Iran, for all its belligerence and all its uh, you know uh, big words and uh, claims that it doesn't care about the international community, it is somewhat sensitive to, to international pressure. So really, I think um, the fate of of this uh, soccer player and the fate of a lot of other prisoners. Um, you know, they, they can be saved if the international community is willing to act. And if, you know, our prime minister, the president of the United States and others are willing to actually actively say their names and, and demand that they, their lives be spared. It is incredibly difficult to know what to do. And so helpless for so many of us who wish we could do more. You know, when we look back to generations who came before us that, that saw great tragedies and travesties happen on an international scale and wonder, where were all the people back then? And now we're kind of getting a taste of that in, in the helplessness that, that comes with being this far away and really wanting to do something in support of those who are struggling in this way and certainly not exclusive to Iran, but what what more could we do to help from here? Yeah, well, I mean, just earlier today, uh, I and, and some friends of mine who are also human rights activists um, began writing to our own parliamentarians and, and senators, um, those that sit on the House uh, Human Rights Committee and uh, the Senate's Human Rights Committee, asking that each of them adopt a prisoner, basically. And this is an old concept that had been done during a Soviet era and has been done since then. And the idea is that our parliamentarians would each, you know, take a prisoner, become familiar with that case, and continuously speak about them in, in you know, in the Senate, in the House, um, in the media, and elsewhere. And the hope is to c- create kind of a global network of parliamentarians, of celebrities, of others that would champion these cases. You're, you're exactly right. The whole situation feels incredibly helpless right now. But I think what we can do is try to harness this kind of people power um, and bring pressure to bear. Iranians on the streets are risking their lives and they're begging for international support. And I think what we can do is, is try to provide that to them. And so hopefully, you know, if anyone's listening that has a big platform, you know, now is your chance to try to save a life. Where do we go in order to to do that gather? When you say you're connecting with other activists, is there a, is there a location online that, that is a good resource for people that might be driving down the road in their car right now and going, I want to do this. Where do I go to learn more on how to? Yeah, that's a great question. We have actually just recently set up a, a website. Our, our group is called the uh, Iran Justice Collective, so the ijcollective.com. Um, and, and we have set it up in the hopes of, um, as I mentioned, you know, gathering, gathering parliamentarian support. But, um, you know, if, if individuals are interested in, in getting involved, please get in touch with us, ijcollective.com, and we will find you a prisoner whose case you can champion. Regrettably, um, there is no shortage of prisoners whose, whose lives are at stake, and, and, you know, anyone can lend a hand and, and try to publicize these cases. ijcollective.com. Kaveh, thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, following the story. It's really important that the media pay attention.